Amen. Y'all ready to have a good evening? Yes! Tonight will be our last foundation study of 2021. If you're trying to work that out, it means that next Monday we will be off in preparation for the end of the year bonfire at the Pow Pow Ranch. It's also largely due to the fact that I'll be out of town on a ministry assignment. This means that we will complete Daniel 5 tonight, and that will conclude our emphasis on the Babylonian Empire. Then we will pick up in Daniel 6 in our new schedule, which will be on Tuesday nights, January 4th of 2022. That will begin our emphasis on the Medo-Persian Empire. We're... Uh, we're going to give you guys a historical introduction to Daniel 5 so that you're well equipped to understand some of the intriguing activities that are occurring within the chapter. Before we do that, we're going to take an unusual step for us, though. We wanted to open with the scripture that we think for this body and this chapter will be insightful for your own lives in the days to come and insightful and understanding a serious takeaway from the chapter before we ever read the chapter. This is James 1, 9 through 10. <clears throat> Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. Amen. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, mm. since they will pass away like a wild flower. As men of the kingdom, we stand in a high position that enables us to glorify the Lord for what he is doing in us and through us. In this life's journey, you will often be faced with interactions with those who are rich, with those who are powerful in this particular world's setting. We should each keep in the forefront of our minds that this world's setting is like flowers that will soon pass away. Yeah. So in every interaction, every interaction with those who seem rich and powerful, you are in the higher position of being able to bless them with what you have been given. Amen. They are not in a position to bless you. Say it again, please. So in every position with someone who is rich and powerful, so... Fat stacks or big muscles, it doesn't matter. You are in the position to bless them with what you have been given. That's right. They are not in the position to bless you. Come on. You should not want what they have to offer. Because it's subpar. It's yeah, great value yeah. brand. But they have great need of what you have to offer. Saints, this evening you will notice that Daniel has this attitude. And he is a shining example of it. If you look around, you also notice that your leaders in this body have this attitude. This is an attitude that all believers must fully grasp. Somebody say, fully grasp. Fully grasp. If you are to be an oak of righteousness, rather than a pathetic reed that is swayed by worldly winds. Somebody say, I'm making up my mind. I'm making up my mind. See, by the end of the evening, we're going to make up our minds that we do not want the riches of this world. 
that we will not be enticed by tokens, bribes, or seductions of what the worldly may have to offer that they hope to influence you with. This is especially true of your relatives. If you do this, you will have every advantage over the enemy because the enemy has always offered the kingdoms of this world to turn believers away from the kingdom of God that is enveloping this world. This is an attitude that we have to grab hold of right away. I have sat with more millionaires than you might know about that just wanted to help us. Of course, they didn't just want to help us. They also wanted favorable judgment from us. Mm -hmm. Take nothing. Expect nothing. Do not desire to increase your life beyond what God has given you. And you'll be able to see clearly and help them in ways that they could never dream that you could have helped them in. Come on, church. We will not bow. Amen. Look, we're going to be begin tonight with an overview of the Neo-Babylonian kings. As you can see on this slide, we learned last week about Nabopolassar. He was the George Washington of Babylon. He's the one that won independence from Assyria and began to establish the Neo-Babylonian Empire. His son, Nebuchadnezzar, he was prophesied to that he was the head of gold. And he sacked Jerusalem, but he also got saved, as we learned last week. Amen. Did you all learn that last week? Yes. So Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to move on past him tonight. He had a son named Evil Merodach. He's the son of Nebuchadnezzar, and he's the one that freed Jehoiachin when Jehoiachin was in prison. He reigned a short time, two years. You can see this in 2 Kings 25, 27 through 30. Now, when you hear the name Evil Merodach, Understand that's a homonym. Evil does not mean evil in its original language. The, e the word evil in English has nothing to do with the Babylon. His mama didn't name him evil. A lot of people's mama <laughs> didn't love him. That is not this case. That, that V is pronounced as a W and the E is pronounced as an A. And we're going to say evil because it's easier for us to say. But there is no association with the English word evil and the man's name. So moving after him, we have Nereglissar. He's the next king in line. He's the son-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, scholars know him as probably the same as <coughs> Nergal Sherezer in Jeremiah 39.3. And uh, he is at the final siege of Jerusalem. Then we have a three-month reign from Labashi Marduk. He's the son of Nereglissar. And he is removed by Nabonidus who is the next one in line. Nabonidus is the absent king. He doesn't like being in Babylon. He's the absent king and father of Belshazzar, who takes the reign in his stead. And that brings us to the events of Daniel 5 tonight. We're going to be learning about Belshazzar, who is a co-regent. So our text tonight is going to pick up in the final hours of Belshazzar's co-regency with Nabonidus. We thought that it would be best to avoid a few misconceptions and equip you for the best understanding of these events by displaying this next slide. So this next slide is going to be very insightful for us as we've been reading Daniel chapter 5 the last week. The slide is entitled Ancestors. There is no word in Aramaic for grandfather. So 
It continues to say the word father is often used of ancestors, and then it has some scriptural references after. But if you've read Daniel 5 and you saw how Daniel 5 referred to Belshazzar as the son of, then this would be very insightful to you. No word in Aramaic for grandfather. There are many genetic father and son relationships in the Babylonian monarchy. But in some sense, any successor to a Babylonian monarch can be referred to as the son of whichever king preceded him. Notice the way that the Bible background commentary illustrates this for us. So check out this slide with us. Nebuchadnezzar, wow, his name's apparently hard to say tonight. Nebuchadnezzar and Nabonidus had the same name. This is according to Labinatos. And were at times confused. Additionally, however, in the ancient world, successive monarchs were often identified as sons of famous predecessors, even when there was no dynastic or genealogical connection. <coughs> so, for instance, on the black obelisk of Shalmaneser III... Those famous, obelisks keep coming up. Well, <laughs> yeah. Jehu, king of Israel, is identified as the son of Omri, mm. even though he had been responsible for wiping out the line of Omri and was of no relation. In fact, probably well known to the Assyrians because they experienced it firsthand. In the Assyrian and Babylonian culture, the successor to any monarch is considered his son. Are you guys following that? Yeah. If he came after him, they just agree that it is his son. This is confusing to us as a Western people, but was co a common practice of the culture of the day that we're reading about. Now, last week, we saw confusion between Nabonidus and Nebuchadnezzar in several Dead Sea Scroll documents. But as you can see by the slide that we just read, their names are often confused in the record. Y'all remember those Dead Sea documents? The yeah. prayer of Nabonidus? Yeah. Well, we're finding more and more historical records where Nabonidus and Nebuchadnezzar are actually confused. Mm -hmm. And we knew that there was a real similarity between their names in a continental language, but we're seeing it again and again and again, and scholars have noted it. So we wanted to bring that back up. For the purposes of tonight, you may just remember that Babylonians consider successive kings as sons. You guys remember that? Perfect yeah. said? Successive kings as sons. This is a very similar practice to the Hebrew word and concept of bar. Anybody with us this evening? Yes. A bar in Hebrew can mean a genetic descendant, but it also can mean anyone who does what you do who is like you. It's a related concept in Aramaic. To give you a scriptural record for that, if you've ever read Numbers, he says, I'm going to tell you about the sons of Moses and Aaron. Yeah. And then he lists only Aaron's sons. From that, the rabbis take the concept that if you teach Torah to somebody and they employ Torah in the way that you do, then they are your son. Well, in Babylonian and in Assyrian culture, when you act like somebody, you're their son. Vis-a-vis, -vis, if you are a king after a king, then you are his son. Yeah. Now, again, for our purposes this evening, we want to focus in on Nabonidus. I have another slide for you guys. The last king of Babylon, the son of a priest of the moon god Sin from Haran. It's interesting how that location keeps popping up. Yeah, it is. In Upper Mesopotamia, which is that bottom section of modern-day Turkey, he was apparently not from the royal line, and thus usurped the throne. 
He favored the sin cult over that of Marduk. It's a bad cult. The chief god of Babylon. And thus caused friction between himself and the religious establishment in Babylon. For some unstated reason, Nabonidus left Babylon for the oasis of Tima in the Arabian desert and stayed there ten years. His son Belshazzar ruled Babylon in his place, taking care of administrative and military duties. Thus, Nabonidus was not present to fill his role as king in the New Year festivals of Marduk, thereby incurring the wrath of the Marduk priests. Nabonidus had returned to Babylon for only a short time before his kingdom was attacked by Cyrus of Persia, who captured the city in 539, according to the Babylonian writer Barossus. Cyrus later made Nabonidus a governor in Carmania. Now, it may not be obvious to the casual reader, but there's a decline happening in Babylon. There's a decline that is happening in this period. In our last chapter, if you remember, we saw Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold, announce the supremacy of the Most High God. Now, during this time period, we're watching Nabonidus pursuing and worshiping the moon god Sin. Man, we went from an extraordinary revelation to about as bad as it gets. This is worse than Marduk, and it is the prototype for Allah. Now, on any given afternoon, if you'd like to buy one of us a cup of coffee, we would be happy to explain the tension that existed during Abraham's day, that existed during Gideon's day, and is now illustrated in the history of Babylon between Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5. Our contention is that throughout the biblical narrative, there is a moon god that is occupying Jericho, a moon god that is influencing the kings of the east to attack Gideon on camels with crescents, that there is a moon god that even Father Abraham had to deal with, and it's still the primary problem in the region and may come back into our Daniel studies later. Mm -hmm. But for tonight's purposes... Know that Babylon is in military and spiritual disarray. Nabonidus did not undergo that very special ceremony you learned about last week (laughs) where you pull the Babylonian king's ears to make him bow to Marduk, that you slap his face a couple times to see if you can get a tear of good omens. Well, since he didn't do that to the priesthood of Marduk, this caused some disunity in their religious system. Furthermore... He divided Babylonian troops significantly because he was off on a campaign in the Arabian desert with a large amount of the forces of Akkad, or Babylon. Guys, that's only a few hundred miles from the hometown of Muhammad, and it is in the area of all of the Islamic historical sites. But again, we'll leave that for another day. His decade-long absence made it necessary for him to utilize his son, Belshazzar, to act as a co-regent and present king in Babylon. So daddy's not there, and son has to stand up and pretend to be king. The spiritual and military disunity left Babylon as an empire in a vulnerable state to the Persians. Okay, The same way that our national state right now is pretty vulnerable to foreign powers. So... A great deal of skepticism has been leveled at the book of Daniel by the supposed scholars throughout the years. And I'm sure many of you have found those commentaries. 
In fact, Daniel 5 is often regarded as entirely fictional. Y'all should boo. By many of these supposed scholars. The primary reason is that up until recent history, the only Babylonian inscriptions that existed referred to Nabonidus as the last king of Babylon. And the Bible refers to Belshazzar. And it refers to him being king when Babylon fell to the Persians in 539 B.C. As usual, their skepticism was misplaced and the Bible was proven to be more accurate than the assumptions made by these historians. Let's take a look at this next slide, which uh, is again from some folks at the British Museum. No, they're our <laughs> friends at the British Museum. We friends. found a good use for the United Kingdom. British friends. We have we'll British friends. we let them friends. keep the old artifacts. So this slide is entitled The Cylinder of Nabonidus. Now, just to put this in perspective, this cylinder is, you know, only about eight and a half inches long. So it's very tiny, very detailed inscription. And look at what the inscription talks to us about. Clay foundation cylinders were placed inside the walls of buildings as a record of a king's achievements. This cylinder describes the rebuilding of a ziggurat by Nabonidus, (laughs) the last king of Babylon. Look at this next line. Nabonidus here prays for his son, Belshazzar, who ruled Babylon while he was away. Wow, doesn't that clarify it for us? Then there's a reference uh, about Daniel 5, 7, and 8. So the consistent mistake of scholars, right, is to assume that if they haven't found a document from 2,500 years ago yet, well, then the Bible must be wrong, right? We haven't found anything. Yet time and time again, this assumption (coughs) proves to be false when the Bible is eventually proven to be historically accurate. Do y'all catch the arrogance of the academic world? Yeah. 2,500 to 3,000 years ago, and if we haven't found an inscription yet, then the Bible must be wrong. Rather than reading the biblical record and keep looking. And their historical track record for these academics is again and again and again, they have to eat their own words, but they don't. They leave what they wrote in print, they cause the destruction of faith of others, and they just keep going as if they didn't just get it wrong. They're a lot like our climatologists today. Uh-oh. <laughs> that's a good word. If we don't understand the Bible, the problem is in our understanding. And that's just a good place to start. Yeah. Our position is that the Bible is accurate. Yeah. Yeah. And scholars will eventually catch up to what the Bible has already explicitly stated as true. Yeah. The most interesting part of this inscription is that Daniel must have been an actual eyewitness to the events related since his history is better than that of the scholars over the last two millennia. That's a reasonable position, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. So let's look at Belshazzar in a little more depth. I'm going to read this slide, and then Pastor Jude is going to comment. Belshazzar means Bel has protected the king. (coughs) Bel the son and co-regent of Nabonidus, which we just covered from 539 B.C., the last sovereign of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. The following passage explicitly <coughs> states that before Nabonidus started on his expedition to Tima in Arabia, he had entrusted actual kingship to Belshazzar. 
He entrusted a campaign to his eldest, firstborn son, the troops of the land he sent with him. He freed his land. He entrusted the kingship to him. Then he himself undertook a distant campaign. So now they're separate. The power of the land of Akkad, or Babylon, advanced with him towards Kema in the midst of the uh, westland. He set his face. He himself established his dwelling in Kema. That, the city, uh, that city he made glorious. They made it like the palace of Babylon. The Babylonian records indicate that Belshazzar became co-regent in the third year of Nabonidus' reign in 553 and continued in that capacity until the fall of Babylon in 539. All right. Did you guys enjoy the character sketch last week? Yes. 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 Well, this character sketch is going to be enjoyable as it reveals something entirely different than Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar, as you just saw on the slide, is the son of an absent king, one who marched out with forces into the Arabia. He was made co-regent and acting king because his father did not want to be in Babylon. He wanted to be somewhere else. It's clear that Nabonidus was far more interested in Arabia and Arabian moon gods than he was actually ruling the Babylonian kingdom. Wow. He even made an alternate palace. He intended to live there, and the text says made it glorious. Yeah. Really very little intention of ever returning to visit. He just substituted himself for someone else. Now, we, in uh, hours upon hours of research, have come yeah. to think of uh, Belshazzar as a playboy prince. A little Dubai baby. <laughs> a playboy prince that is partying while his father is away. He seems to have no genuine military or political experience as his qualifications. But there is one important qualification that he did possess that helped him legitimize his rule. Would you like to know what that is? Yes. It really is his family line. It's evident that Belshazzar actually exercised the co-regency in Babylon and that the Babylonian records in a remarkable manner supplement the biblical notes. They were never in conflict. The archaeologists hadn't found them yet. When you read Daniel 5, Daniel 7, and Daniel 8, and it says Belshazzar is king, the previous historians were wrong, and the biblical record was right. The previous historian said he couldn't be king because all we have found is says that Nabonidus is king, but they were just wrong. They hadn't found it yet. Right. Now we have. <laughs> the book of Daniel is thus not in error in representing Belshazzar as the last king of Babylon, as negative criticism once believed. Nor can it be said to be wrong in calling Belshazzar the son of Nebuchadnezzar. He's not just son in the sense of he's a king after Nebuchadnezzar. It's apparent that Belshazzar was lineally related to Nebuchadnezzar because Belshazzar's mother, Nidocris, seems to have been Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. So to legitimize the throne, Nabonidus married the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, and she is the mother of Belshazzar. While Belshazzar was a pathetic playboy prince, he was also the actual grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah. This was probably a pretty important political factor in legitimizing the monarchy that he and his father shared in a co-regency. We wanted to help you visualize some of the things that we've been saying. 
None of us are electronically adept, so these slides take a while, but we kind of feel like they help. Do you think they help? Yes. Here's the slide that we prepared. So this just helps you visualize everything we've been saying. We start at the top with the uh, patriarch, the great George Washington Nabopolazar. He has a son, and we're going to call this the father, Nebuchadnezzar. Then he has, safe to say, two sons, two daughters. His children, evil Merodach, he has another daughter. He has Neriglisar and Nidocris. And then, moving down to the grandchildren, we have Labashi Marduk, and then Belshazzar, who is a child of Nidocris. So this simplification serves to illustrate that there are essentially three generations. Three generations. Say three. Three. Three generations of Babylonian kings from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar, whether we are speaking of genetic descent or the more Babylonian reckoning of seeing successors as sons. So somebody say three generations again. Three generations. I'm sorry, how many? Three. Jeremiah summarized this process years in advance. He said in Jeremiah chapter 27, verses 6 and 7, the following. Now I will give all your countries into the hands of my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I will make even the wild animals subject to him. All nations will serve him, the father, and his son, the son, and his grandson, until the time for his land comes. Then, got it? then many nations and great kings will subjugate him. Do you see a timeline in that? Yeah. In Daniel 5, the time that Jeremiah announced has come for Babylon to be subjugated as the prophet had said. So finally, as we go to Daniel 5, it's important to remember that the book of Daniel is arranged thematically. Say thematically. Thematically. And not in chronological order. We have a familiar slide with you. We're going to highlight this uh, area that's in the yellow box. Notice that it goes 7, 8, 5. That's because chapter 7 and chapter 8 occurred before chapter 5, and that's what we want to highlight to you tonight. About 12 to 14 years before chapter 5 is 7 and 8. You know what else? Everything in that yellow box is occurring during the reign of Belshazzar. So there's an important reason to acknowledge the significance of this chronology. When you are reading Daniel, Belshazzar seems to come out of nowhere and disappear just as quickly. However, when you consider the timing of the chapters, it becomes clear that a significant portion of Daniel has occur- occurred during his reign, as Pastor Eric just told us. So it's not that chapter 5 is just about Belshazzar. There's actually been years of history, but the book has placed Daniel 5 before 7 and 8 for thematic reasons. And here's what we mean. Go to Daniel 7 and find verse 1. Somebody say there when you're there. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions. They passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. So guys, think about what this would mean. At the time that Belshazzar first came to power, the beginning of his reign, Daniel was shown the vision of 
four kingdoms or beasts that would reign but ultimately fall to the kingdom of God in a successive <coughs> order. Daniel understood from the book of Jeremiah and the vision that Medo, the Medo-Persian Empire would supplant Belshazzar. So he has Jeremiah's words about we're going to have three generations and in the vision that the Babylonian Empire is going to be supplanted by Medo-Persia prior to walking in in chapter 5. Daniel knew that this first event in the first year of Belshazzar's reign, in the entire time leading up to the fall, he's had time to pray and meditate about this. Yeah. What exactly does it mean prior to walking in in chapter 5? So to recap that for you, Jeremiah said there would be a daddy, there'd be some children, and then there would be a grandson, and then Babylon's rule would come to an end. Well, Daniel has already had the vision in Daniel 2 where he saw four kingdoms. He's already had the vision in Daniel 7 where he saw four kingdoms. He can count the Babylonian monarchy. He knows that grandson has just taken power. He is aware that we're approaching a time of transition. The way that Daniel 8.1 starts helps you with this too. Daniel 7.1 was the first year of Belshazzar's reign. Daniel 8.1 is the third year of King Belshazzar's reign. He says, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. Do you hear that? So he's already got Daniel 2 under his belt. He's already got Daniel 7 under his belt. And he already has Daniel 8 under his belt. Daniel again had a vision and understood the order of the successive kingdoms that would follow Belshazzar's reign. This is a kind of second witness that came on top of Jeremiah's writings and the vision of chapter 7. It constitutes a threefold witness for him. He sees the order of the kingdoms. When we walk into Daniel 5, Daniel already knows before he even sees the handwriting on the wall that we're in a time of transition. Yeah. He already knows that this has to come to an end during this king's reign. When we get into Daniel 5's writing on the wall, Daniel did not just have to pull an interpretation out of the air. That's why there's no special prayer meeting. There's no running off to talk with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He had been prepared for this moment since before this playboy king came into office. Oh, wow. Because he had been reading and meditating on the word of God. Can I tell you that we can be in the same position? That you can know what is going to happen based on reading the word of God. It's not all just that the spirit speaks it to you out of nowhere. In fact, truly spiritual people are not just prophesying out of thin air. They are meditating on the word of God and prophesying out of their understanding as the Spirit gives them witness. Recently, people have given me prophecies. And they've said, I am a prophet. You, you have to hear this. Well, I'll judge you, sir, by the validity and efficacy that the Word of God merits your prophecy. If it agrees with the Word, then great. If it does not agree with the Word, then your pedigree means nothing to me. Amen. Daniel is a true man of God in the sense that the Word has informed his spiritual direction. We want to give you a few highlights from the lifespan of Daniel. So as you're looking at this slide, we're going to see another fascinating detail about our chapter tonight. 
You've seen this slide before, but in the uh, box that we have circled, Daniel is about 81 years old when he confronts Belshazzar before Babylon falls to the Persians in Daniel 5. Having already received the dream of the four beasts in chapter 7 and the vision of the ram and the goat in chapter 8. We started our study of Daniel learning about him and his friends as being very young men, but also very special men. Tonight we're going to see a very mature Daniel. We're going to see an older Daniel. You're going to see a, a man that you would think at this age he might not be able to succumb to the pressure. But don't you believe it for a second. You're going to see Daniel operating under the thing that he had been preparing for his entire life and the prophecies that he had already understood. As we get uh, ready to pray and read our chapter tonight, do these introductions help you? Yes. yes. I would encourage you because I know that as a body you are studying ahead of us. We want that. We really do. Spend some time going back through what we've already shared with you. Because we've told you about the chronology. We've told you about many of these things since chapter 1's introduction. And we did that to help set you up to be able to understand the book. And I'm not bragging on myself. I'm bragging on my brothers. They did a good job of setting it up for you. They're helping you avoid some classic errors that have been made for centuries. Because we want you to have deep understanding into the book. Yeah. All right, which anointed man is going to stand up and pray? Since we're making eye contact, Pastor Eric, I'm going to pray. Do it. <laughs> Father, we thank you tonight. For we thank you that you are open to have it for us to receive our understanding. Yes, Father, we hunger and thirst for your word. Father, we learn from men like Daniel how to stand in our time, how to confront men and tell them what your word says. Father, we thank you that in our humble position, we really are exalted in your eyes. Yes, so, Father, we ask tonight that you would give us wisdom from the heavens that we could practically walk out in the name of Jesus. Well, Miss Jennifer, you get to read tonight. And I just want to tell you all in advance, she's going to ask me afterwards how she did. Do you know how I know that? I've been doing this with her for 28 years. So every once in a while, even though you think your girl might not need the affirmation, just assume that she does and tell her she did a good job. <laughs> Get it, Jen. King Belshazzar. Nailed it! She got it! <laughs> For a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the God of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. The king called out for the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners to be brought and to, 
and said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. O king, live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. This man, Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? <coughs> I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretation to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. <coughs> Nevertheless, I will read the writings for the king and tell him what it means. O king, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. <coughs> Because of the high position he gave him, all the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from his people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and set over them anyone he wishes. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you have set up against the Lord of heaven. You have the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the God of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all of your ways. Therefore he sets the hands therefore he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written, many, many temple parsons. This is what those words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighted on the scales and found wanting. Parses, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. 
Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Wow. You did a good job, Ben. book of Daniel, doesn't something begin to be inspired inside of you? A desire to rise up and take a stand for the king of Israel? Yes. My goodness, as we're reading through these chapters, I am inspired to rise up and take a stand for for God. And as we're reading these chapters, this is a very common theme through the book of Daniel. Now, Daniel 5 has many interesting Mysteries that I'm sure all of you guys saw as you were reading through. Tonight we're going to cover most of those. And here's a little secret before we start, Lintone. We're also going to cover some mysteries that you didn't even know existed in the chapter. So you guys get better buckle up, get ready, start listening. And Lintone is going to start us out in verse 1, and he's going to read all the way down to verse 3 for us. Yeah, listen, we're going to start out with three verses. We usually spend a lot of the time on the first verse. We're taking a big chunk tonight. (laughs) King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You guys see that footnote by father? You see that it could be grandfather? Now that you know the culture of Babylon and that they didn't have a name in their language that said grandfather, now you understand why the scripture says what it does. Let's keep reading. And taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Uh So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. Goodness gracious. Does that make you cringe a little bit? Should. It would be hard to overstate how offensive this action is to the Most High God. Why did Belshazzar feel the need to bring these particular items into his Playboy Prince party? Surely there were other objects he could have used from the exploits of Babylon's military campaign, but no! This irreligious act was undoubtedly satanically motivated and was probably emanating from the influences of the Arabian moon god, Sin, that the playboy and his daddy were so drawn toward. Now let's read Numbers chapter 4 to get an idea of how the God of Israel viewed these particular objects. So this is Numbers 4, and we're going to pick up in verse 4. And just tune your ears to the detail and caring for the holy things of the temple. This is the work of the Kohathites at the tent of meeting. The care of the most holy things. Say most holy. Most Most holy. When the camp is to move, Aaron and his sons are to go in and take down the shielding curtain and put it over the Ark of the Covenant law. Then they are to cover the curtain with a durable leather. Yeah. Hmm. Spread a cloth of solid blue over that and put the poles in place. Verse 7. Over the table of the presence 
they are to spread a blue cloth and put it, put on it the plates, the dishes, and the bowls and the jars for drink offerings. You think maybe those could be gold goblets? I think they might be gold goblets. The bread that is continually there is to remain on it. So it is most likely these objects that Belshazzar is using in his Playboy party. Pretty detestable when you see the care that God had entrusted uh, the articles with to his priests. Yeah. Let's pick up in verse 8. They are, to place, uh, they are to spread a scarlet cloth over them, cover that with the durable leather, Careful and put the poles in place. They are to take a blue cloth and cover the lampstand that is for the light, together with its lamps, its wick trimmers, and trays, and all its jars for the olive oil used to supply it. Then they are to wrap it in all its accessories. There's a lot of things in here. You see the detail? And they're responsible for treating them all as holy. Uh, wrap all its accessories in a covering of the durable leather and put it on the carrying frame. Verse 11, over the gold altar, they are to spread a blue cloth and cover it, cover that with the durable leather and put the poles in place. They are to take all the articles used for ministering in the sanctuary, wrap them in a blue cloth, and cover that with the durable leather, and then put them on the carrying frame. Pretty spectacular, right? Yeah. So as we continue to read the passage, notice that it does not matter which item is being used by Belshazzar. All the articles, say all the articles. All, all the articles. And all the accessories are to be covered with a blue cloth and carried on poles to avoid contact between what is common yeah. and what is holy. And that distinction is important. Mm -hmm. I'm going to pick up in verse 13 with you now. They are to remove the ashes from the bronze altar and spread a purple cloth over it. Then they are to place on it all the utensils used for ministering at the altar including the fire pans, meat forks, shovels, and sprinkling bowls. Over it, they are to spread a covering of durable leather and put the poles in place. After Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy furnishings and all the holy articles, and when the camp is ready to move, only then are the Korathites to come and do the carrying. <laughs> But they must not touch the holy things, or they will die. die. Oh my. The Kohathites are to carry those things that are in the tent of meeting. Saints. The Kohathites were Levites. So not just Israelites, but a specific tribe that was selected for this purpose. Who had been assigned for this special job of carefully moving the items dedicated to the worship of Yahweh. If the Kohathites had to take this kind of care... In handling the holy things, how much more should the playboy prince have been hesitant to use them in his party to entertain his friends? Come on. Guys, he's having a drunken, raucous party, and he is showing no hesitancy to handle things that Levites showed hesitancy in. Now, even the Kohathites, as we mentioned, do not casually handle the things of Yahweh, of Adonai, his possessions. It was only after Aaron's sons had carefully wrapped them that a Kohathite would dare to touch it. Somebody else had to do it first. Mm. I imagine they probably checked a couple times. Like, hey, did you get it all? Is it covered? Are you ready? Now, if you think that we're overplaying at this point, consider verse 20. In Numbers 4.20, we escalate. 
But the Kohathites must not go in to look at the holy things, even for a moment, or they will die. Catch this process. Aaron's sons had to come and wrap everything first. They had to shield the holy things before the other specially anointed Levites could come in and touch them. Wow. If a Kohathite touched the holy things without being wrapped by Aaron's sons, then God said he should die. If a Kohathite looked at the holy things, even for a moment, without the sons of Aaron wrapping them, God said he should die. The Playboy Prince is using the emblems of God's desire to meet with men in holiness as an accoutrement to his dinner party. Mm. This story's a lot less funny when you read it in that light, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You must ask yourself, what is it that possessed this Playboy Prince to want to involve the holy things of God in this way? He's got a whole kingdom before him. He could have used any kind of dishes. He chose these for a reason. Now, some would suggest that it was simply ignorance. We are suggesting that there was a more devious motivation that was inspired from the Arabian moon god's influences on his family. All Islam wants to do is usurp the god of the Jews. Come on. To say Allah Akbar is not to say God is great. It is to say technically God is greater, which begs the question, greater than who? It is an antichrist religion with a pedophile prophet in a demonic book. And these are the origins of Islam. Mm. Allah is just another name for the moon god sin. As we move forward this evening, perhaps each of us should ask whether or not it is appropriate for we, as the people of God, to decorate our homes with things like crosses. Or maybe we should consider the motivations that a person has when he's invoking the precious name of Jesus into a vulgar conversation. Mm. Wherever your family stands on these issues, it really might be time to take seriously that Adonai takes pretty seriously the misuse of holy things. We might even be able to make application to the seriousness with which we approach things like marriage enrichment or perfecting your parenting or discipleship helps or securing your singles or any other teaching that was a holy endowment that Adonai blessed us with. Why don't we pick up in verse 4 while that searing conviction settles on your soul. If you're tucking your crosses in between your boobs, think about that for a minute. As they drank wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So it was not enough to utilize truly holy things in a casual manner. This practice quickly escalated to blatant idolatry. You know, this is always the case when people are in decline. Mm. They go from bad to worse. In fact, 2 Timothy 3, 12 through 17 says, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, 
Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. Because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God breathed. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. There should be nothing in all this world more precious to us than the division between the holy and the common. As people who have had an interaction with the holy God, this distinction ought to be pretty important, right? Yes. The word of God is to us the breath of God. And we must maintain that kind of reverence for what we have been entrusted with. These are not just... Little things we play with. These are diamonds God has handed to us from on high. The scripture itself is not a footnote to justify a point that we would like to make. Or to put a cherry on a little direction that we want for our own lives. You can use common literature for that all day. No. We say no. The scripture is our life. And should be treated more preciously than your life. We ought, to, we ought to want to die for the holiness and the distinction that is the word of God. Church, just because you understand this concept tonight doesn't mean that you should just let it fly by. Oh, I get it. I've heard that scripture before. I understand. I'm supposed to distinguish between holy and common. Listen to the rebuke of the priesthood. In Ezekiel chapter 22, starting in verse 26. Pastor Nick, right before you read that, I I could tell how disfavorable some of my comments were earlier. (laughs) You don't like the idea that we're criticizing Christian jewelry or that we might be calling into question some of your home's decorations. Did anybody live through the 80s in here? Is there a person? Raise your hand. Okay, some of you are really babies if you didn't live through the 80s. Why did Billy Idol wear a cross in his ear when he sang a song like White Wedding or Money, Money, Money? What, why do people choose to take certain emblems and use them the way that they do? Why, why when you turn on Fox, this will catch all of you that were alive in the 80s, old people that watch the news. Why does every other commercial feature a man wearing a giant cross on his lapel while he's selling you pillows? Do you think that's a right use of the execution instrument of Jesus Christ? So he's just trying to witness. No, he's not. He's trying to sell you pillows. Okay. We, We need to wake up. And this story has got a warning on many levels for believers. Okay. And if you think the division between holy and common has to do with whether or not you carry a beer into this room, you're stupid. Holy and common has to do with obedience to God or not obedience to God. Amen. Jesus made wine as his very first miracle. Uh, the tabernacle that is the meeting place with God required fermented drink offerings. We draw all of our lines in the wrong places, and you don't think it's a big deal to put a giant gold cross on your daughter's chest with a low-lying shirt. It's a big deal. Trust me, it's a big deal. We need to think deeply about these things. Hey, what's that warning from Ezekiel? So as you're thinking deeply about what Pastor Eric just said, Ezekiel 22, 26. 
Her priests do violence to my law and profane my holy things. They do not distinguish between the holy and the common. They teach that there is no difference between the unclean and the clean. And they shut their eyes to the keeping of my Sabbaths, so that I am profaned among them. Her officials within her are like wolves tearing their prey. They shed blood and kill people to make unjust gain. Her prophets whitewash these deeds for them by false visions and lying divinations. They say, this is what the sovereign Lord says when the Lord has not spoken. So that's under the same category of misplacing the uncommon among the common, misplacing the holy among the common. The people of the land practice extortion and commit robbery. They oppress the poor and needy and mistreat the foreigner, denying them justice. So tonight, we don't want to stray off point from the biblical and historical narrative. But it just seemed pertinent to us for our times, for our season right now, to renew a reverence for true prophecy. To renew a reverence for the sanctity of the written word that you are holding in your hands. Come on. Amen. And perhaps to avoid treating holy things like the word of God and the revelation he's given us as decorative trinkets or something that you take advantage of and forget after hearing it. Come on. The plain truth is that these practices all lead to blatant idolatry. And listen to Jonah warning us today about what that does in Jonah 2.8. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. You see, when we correctly handle the holy things of God, then guess what grows along with it? Your holiness grows, but also the grace of God that could be yours becomes a part of your life. And you gain the power of God as a witness to those around you. Come on. What about verse 5, Winston? Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. Well, first off, we want you to notice what appeared were the fingers of a human hand. This is significant for at least two reasons. But first, it was by a human hand, influenced by the hand of God, that the regulations were written concerning these holy things. Now we want you to turn to 1 Chronicles 28 and find verse 17. Not very quiet tonight. We may have succeeded in hurting your feelings. That's a great step towards serious spiritual growth. Amen. Thank you, Matthew. You guys in verse 17? Yes. And pure gold for the forks, the basins, and the cups, for the golden bowls, and the weight of each, for the silver bowls, and the weight of each, for the altar of incense made of refined gold, and its weight. Also, his plan for the golden chariot of the cherubim that spread their wings over the covered and covered the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. All this, pay attention to verse 19, all this he made clear to me in writing from the hand of the Lord. Hmm. All the work to be done according to the plan. Now, even if the Babylonians could
They should have been able to read the handwriting of the Holy Scripture. Come on. If they had just started in the right place, maybe they wouldn't be uh, in such a desperate situation. Adonai has already used men inspired of his Holy Spirit to make known to others what his will is in his written word. When people claim ignorance, it's not because they cannot read it. It's because they do not read it. Man. Oh, wait, wait, y'all. That's better than you think it is. Yes, it's good. People are not actually ignorant of what God requires. They choose to ignore what God requires. Yep. I can see that a few of you are not sure that what I'm telling you is true. So let's quote the Apostle Paul. Romans 1, 18 through 25. The wrath of God is being revealed. Hmm. From heaven against all the godless and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. Wait, Judah, they suppress something they already know and is plain to them? Because God has made it plain to them. Not only did Belshazzar know better, there's a reason that he chose to do what he did. In fact, there's a reason we all choose to do the things that we do. Yep. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is praised. Amen. Saints, if what we're saying about Belshazzar is true, that he had a prior witness. And Romans 1 makes the claim that all of the world is subject to this because the creation itself pours it out. There's a particular Jewish homiletic that comes to mind. It's called Calve Comer. I'm looking at a pastor or a missionary's daughter in here. I'm looking at people who were raised in this house who have known the Holy Scriptures from infancy. And I can't help but say the term whitewash comes right back to my mind while I'm staring at you. This is a house of the righteous, but it is entirely possible to fall asleep in the light exactly like Belshazzar did. In fact, Belshazzar had the witness of the worldwide edict that his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar published in every language to the nations. Read it in as many translations as you would like to. He published it for them. Belshazzar had this witness, and he was not ignorant of the truth. He was suppressing it. He was suppressing the truth because he is a debased playboy prince who is asleep in the light. Yeah. So this hand that appears, is that an intriguing part of Daniel? Yeah. Yeah, it really is. The, God used a human hand to write the scripture and chronicle declares that, and God uses a human form 
to write on the wall here. It reminds me of Psalm 144.1 where he says, Praise to the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. This hand appearing is a sign of many, many things. The second reason that the fingers of the human hand is important to us is a bit of a deep one. And we'll just throw it out there for you and see what you do with it. The word is etzbeon. It's Hebrew uh, Strong's number 677. The word has a dual meaning. It can either mean fingers or toes. It's plural here. And it's translated fingers because it occurs in conjunction with the word for yod, uh, hand, rather. Same, same, yod Hebrew, hand English. It's only other occurrences in all of the Bible because it's Aramaic or in Daniel 2. And it refers to the toes on the feet of the statue. I, I was gripped by this because the statue is in declining value. It starts with gold and it moves all the way down to iron and clay toes. There is something happening in its description. The Gentile kingdoms are going to decline in value until they are overtaken by the kingdom of God. And we're in a time period in Babylon where the head of gold is declining in value and we're going to make a transition to the next section of the statue, which is silver. Keeping in mind that they have already been told Daniel 2, Daniel has already had the experience of Daniel 7. Whatever you make of the toes and fingers connection in Daniel 5 and Daniel 2, it's significant to us that what the Babylonians saw was not a traditional form of a divine manifestation. They didn't see lightning appear. They didn't see fire appear. They didn't see clouds. They didn't feel an earthquake. God chose to express the transition in these kingdoms through the form of a human hand. And they've already been told that a rock would be cut out of a mountain and crush the kingdoms of the world, including theirs in Daniel 2. Daniel 7's already occurred. And listen to this phrase from Daniel 7 and see whether you start to feel at least what it is I'm, I'm saying. Daniel 7:13. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, after those words were recorded, we're now in Daniel 5, occurring after Daniel 7, and we are seeing the handwriting of God. And what form is it coming in? The form of a human hand. It's hard not to see this as a hint or a remez that the human form of Adonai is acting to bring the Gentile kingdoms to an end and doing so in their proper order. And he will bring them to a complete ending in the last days of their reign. There's kind of a funny interaction here. The process of the etzbeyan, the hand or fingers of God, striking the etzbeyan, the toes of the statue. Well, it's already begun. And it is still also yet to come in one fi final climactic encounter. Wow. Okay? Yeah. 
I didn't know how much y'all would glean from that, but trust me, it blessed us. Let's get into the reaction of the king. All right, so look at Belshazzar's reaction to these things. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly. What we see is that, well, the color change, that's a good thing. You would want some kind of reaction from this kind of word from God, the human hand. You, you want a reaction here. When, you, when you've done something wrong, you want, you want your complexion to change. You should blush when you sin. Yeah. There's a big problem when somebody corrects you and you don't react at all. You're just kind of like, I didn't hear it. The yeah. prophets say you, you no longer know how to blush. <laughs> so there's a color change in him. Very good. His thoughts are alarmed. That's good. That's good. His limbs gave way. That's expected. His knees knocked. That's expected. The king called out loudly. To the wrong source and offered earthly rewards to them. Somebody said that's not good. That's not good. Hey, we're not going to do this because Justin and Nick are going to move us forward since there's 51 minutes left. Think of the expressions that come from Daniel 5 alone, though. Okay? Have you ever said, man, my knees were knocking together? Where did you come to learn that expression? Well, it's because your daddy's daddy's daddy used to read the Bible. That's, that's why. Have you ever heard the expression... That guy can't read the writing on the wall? Yeah. Well, that, this is... This is how, how about... Hey, you've been weighed and found wanting. Yep. Okay, these, these are not movie quotes. This comes from the Bible and has made its way into the English vernacular. So as you're looking at the slide, items one through four are designed to bring repentance. Item five is the stubborn human tendency that we all have. Towards sin that repeats the errors of the past, hoping for a better result. <laughs> this is like hearing the words, hearing, and you're changing, but then there is that stubborn element that causes your heart to rise up and repeat the same thing that got you in that position in the first place. How many times did this guy's grandfather call in the wise men and enchanters that couldn't help him? But he ignores everything about his grandfather's testimony, yeah. about that God, ab- about who could help him, and about the uselessness of these wise men. Yeah. Sin is, is by definition the same as insanity. You just keep repeating the same thing, hoping for a different outcome. That's what we hope to illustrate with that, but there's something pretty incredible coming. Are you all ready for it? Yeah. yeah. That kind of sounded like suppressed truth to me. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Incredibly, even comically speaking... Even ironically, there's a thing that happens in the book of Isaiah, a little (laughs) prophecy about this specific detail. Now, we're going to read Daniel 5, 6 first, and we're going to read it in the King James Version. So you guys listen up for a moment. Then the king's countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his loins we're loose. <laughs> That's not good. If you're not sure exactly what that means, we are going to help you with that. <laughs> and his knees smote one against another. So Daniel 5, 6 records what some people might imagine is incontinence. Wow. I, yeah. Wow. His, his britches were in trouble. Yeah, no. His trousers were full. He... We hope he was wearing brown. He wasn't walking straight after the occurrence. He was gripping himself like this. So 
Isaiah prophesied something incredible in the 700s BC that a king named Cyrus would do exactly this to the Babylonians. You guys want to hear it? Okay. Listen, we found this incredibly insightful today. This is Isaiah 45, 1 through 5 in the KJV. Thus saith the Lord who is anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. Man, are you kidding me? You mean to say that about 150 years before this night occurred in Babylon, Isaiah the prophet is prophesying that king's loins are going to be loosed that night? Yeah, that's exactly what we're saying. Imagine if that would have happened a couple decades before the occurrence. Like, like the prophecy happened, we're 130 years in, nothing's happened yet. The historians of the day are like, nope, the Bible's wrong. Nope, what Isaiah prophesied can't occur, hasn't occurred, it's not dependable, all right? Isaiah, totally wrong. Yeah, that's what we're talking about. Until 150 years later, it happens. And then the Bible is always proven true, the true document that it always was. So in Daniel 5, you are seeing a description of what is happening inside his Playboy Palace. And but it's at the nasty. same time, Ooh. there is something else happening. Nothing like having a dinner party with all of your friends, all of your wives, all of your concubines. You bring out the gold goblets and stain your own pants. And there could not be enough toilet paper. <laughs> I wish I could say it hasn't happened to me. <laughs> and then you find out it was written in the best-selling book of all time, both prophesied 150 years before it happened and an eyewitness account while it's happening. Yeah, how would you like to be the prophet who had that word from the Lord? Yeah. <laughs> Are you sure, Lord? Nice card for you. <laughs> all right, so this is what's going on inside his palace. There's all kinds of plumbing issues. And there's also going on outside of the palace. And we have a slide to walk you through this. Now, you get this. You've just seen the scene inside the palace, and Peyton said there were plumbing issues. Uh-huh. Outside the palace, there's about to be plumbing issues as well. Yes. So we have a slide. Belshazzar hosted an extravagant feast to boost morale. <laughs> I don't think it worked the way that he wanted it to. As Babylon was surrounded by a Persian army under the leadership of Ugbaru, Belshazzar (laughs) had a false sense of security. (laughs) 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 Some things you can just never really trust. (laughs) Babylon had massively fortified walls, apparently, (laughs) and food provisions that could thus displayed a festive mood for his nobles to demonstrate confidence in the security of his kingdom. We're we're talking about actual Babylon. (laughs) The Medo-Persians, the Bible study people. (laughs) Hey, what is written is written. Just enjoy it. (laughs) The Medo-Persians, this is important. We want you to catch this. The Medo-Persian army diverted the flow of the Babylonian 
And at that very same moment, the Medo-Persian Confederacy is right outside the city walls looking for a way to breach the city. So as we stated, the Medo-Persian armies had surrounded them. Belshazzar was not the first person to take what had been handed to him for granted. Mm. We have another slide for you. Now, we can see on the screen, looks fairly simplistic. It's actually a wonder of the world, a little bit like the Hanging Garden. You see at the lower right-hand corner of the screen, there's an outer wall that surrounds the city. It goes all the way around. Then you have this large green section that other fortifications and defenses are posted in. Then we have an inner wall that is around the central part of the city. It's a little bit like the inner court on the temple, if you're more familiar with that diagram. But between the two walls is a moat. It's a moat that is supplied by the Euphrates River. They engineered a canal that flowed between two great walls from the Euphrates all the way around. The belief was that they were impenetrable, that no one could crush both walls and get through the canal with siege works, with weapons of war. This is an extraordinary accomplishment. Now the Persians have all the time in the world because Belshazzar is partying yeah. inside. And they're looking for a way to get in. And Nebuchadnezzar before him, ever the man that he was, mind always on war, had thought about this vulnerability beforehand. I have another slide for you that will remind you a bit about his work. Nebuchadnezzar also refurbished the main cow with providing fresh water and drainage for Babylon. It had been blocked with dust and silt after Sennacherib had gotten to it. You remember, Babylon was destroyed by the Assyrians. Nebuchadnezzar's father and his family rebuilt it. Yeah. Nebuchadnezzar went further to improve upon it. Ever the military strategist, he came up with the idea of installing iron grills mm. to prevent soldiers or spies from using this canal or others as a discreet entry into the city. So when you saw that diagram on the screen... That waterwork that's going around, he fortified it. He put iron bars specifically in it. Raising this canal then required him to further raise Procession Street. He reworked the whole city because the one flowed <coughs> under the other. So think through this for a second. Much like Constantinople or one of the churches that Jesus addressed, they thought they were in an impenetrable position. They had an outer wall. They had a moat and then an inner wall and then they're inside of a palace already. So they feel safe and secure. And ironically, at the moment that Belshazzar's britches are getting wet, the canal outside is going dry. And it's going dry because the armies of the Persians and Medes have diverted that canal and caused that inner moat to dry up, exposing the iron bars that Nebuchadnezzar had put in place. 
So now there is a perfect gateway to go into the city. All you have to do is cut through the bars. We read Isaiah 45 to you earlier, and we mentioned that Isaiah had prophesied 150 years earlier that Cyrus would loose the loins of kings. That's not the only thing that was prophesied in that passage. Look at that slide again as you develop an appreciation for true biblical prophecy. Isaiah 45, 1 through 5. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand have I holden, to subdue nations before him. I will loose the loins of kings, and it'll be fun, to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee, and I will make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. Wow. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness and the hidden riches of secret places that thou may knowest that I, the Lord, which call thee by name, am the God of Israel. God has raised up another Gentile to supplant the head of gold. And he, he refers to him as silver in Daniel 2. And he does in much the same way that he worked with Nebuchadnezzar. He's inferior to Nebuchadnezzar and that Cyrus never gets saved. But he is doing what God said to do. While, while in only three generations, Belshazzar has ignored the testimony of the God of Israel and the four faithful Hebrews. And so he is about to die after having soiled himself. So the Persians entered the city on the night of the, the dinner party. According to this slide, it's on October 12th, 539 B.C., Cyrus Cyrus's general captured Babylon without a battle. The great city, without a, without a battle. The Persians diverted the river Euphrates into a canal upriver so that the water level dropped to the height of the middle of a man's thigh, which thus rendered the flood, defen the flood defenses useless and enabled the invaders to march through the riverbed to enter by night. Now this is from Herodotus, which is a Greek scholar. Now, the specificity of Isaiah is incredible, and Daniel knew what had been prophesied. Look at the wording of Isaiah 44, verse 27. It says, Thus saith to the deep, Be dry, and I will dry up thy rivers. That saith of Cyrus, He is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him by the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. The you specificity of this. for what's happening here? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this Jewish prophet, somewhere around 720, is nailing with specificity, the events of 539. Wow. While a grandson is not able to even honor the testimony of his grandfather, while Jews are still living in his kingdom that have blessed him. Do y'all see that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in a matter of just a few verses in Isaiah, they're literally right next to each other. If you take the chapter breaks out of 44 and 45... They're literally one after the other after the other. Prophesied that rivers are going to be dried up. 
prophesied that loins are going to be loosed and prophesied that iron is going to be cut. And all three of these things are happening simultaneously in Daniel chapter 5. That is incredible. We have another slide before we move on to verse 7. This is pretty good. This is Josephus, and he has recorded something astonishing regarding Cyrus' entrance into Babylon. So think day after Daniel 5. Right after. So the letter to Cyrus. When Cyrus made his grand entrance, Daniel presented him with an ancient scroll of Isaiah, which contained a personal letter addressing him by name. Daniel actually had been reading through Isaiah, knew the prophecies, knew what was going to be happening in history. But what's more than all of that, when Cyrus the king shows up, Daniel's the one that hands him Isaiah and says, hey, king, this is about you. You need to read this because God has ordained you 150 years before you ruled to do exactly what you're doing right now. Not to mention the little part about rebuilding Jerusalem that he pointed to emphatically and wanted him to read as well. Yeah, and guess guess what happened shortly after that? He is the greatest advocate for the rebuilding of Jerusalem and Israel. Is that not mind-blowing to y'all? Y'all are still stuck on the britches part. (laughs) Or still mad at us about cross-bosom wear. (laughs) Look, we're trying to have a good time with you. Have fun with us. The king called out for the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners to be brought and said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. So note, the third highest ruler. Why? (laughs) Why the third? Well, it's because Belshazzar is the second highest ruler behind his daddy, Nabonidus. You remember in the beginning, we covered his co-regency, why his dad was off-site. He was in Babylon ruling. Well, the highest position he can offer is third in the kingdom. Mm. Belshazzar is only able to offer that which is in his control. He has nothing else to give. That's not much because he's about to lose everything. Everything's about to be stripped from him. Now, this is a perspective that all believers should have when dealing with the lost. Catch this. They have nothing to offer you because they are about to lose everything. Just like Belshazzar. It is you who have something to offer Friends, that's golden. That's golden. You need to grab hold of that. The rich guy that is offering you a job, somebody who is telling you that they can fund your ministry, whatever it is, they're about to lose everything. Like grass, they're here today and gone tomorrow. You are the one that has something to offer them. Getting that principle right will solidify your identity in Christ and keep you from becoming a sellout. Amen. That's a good word, Pastor. Come on. Why don't we pick up in verse 8? Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. <laughs> and his attempts at sinful reliance aren't helping him. The situation is getting more desperate in the Playboy Palace. 
He's terrified, and he was pale before, but he's more pale now. This would cause some men to come to repentance, but it did not move Belshazzar in that way. He had hardened his heart, and his britches were soiled in the same way that his soul had been. He had grown cold. Now, specifically in this text, there's much controversy surrounding the idea that the wise men could not understand or read the writing. As we want to let you know that the LXX only says they could not interpret it. They could not interpret what was written. We have a commentator and a slide for you that will help bring some resolution to this issue. When the story says that the king's wise men could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant, the meaning is probably not that the writing was in an unknown script, but that it did not make sense to them. As you get this, we have the script that is the ancient manuscript everything is translated from. It's that it didn't make sense in their minds, what they could conceive of. For the storyteller, the writing was apparently in regular Aramaic script, giving ordinary Aramaic words. But the message conveyed by the words was beyond the understanding of the pagan wise men. And that sounds like some counseling sessions. The mysterious name of Isaiah's son is an example here, where there is a text that is written in other places of the word, but men don't understand it because they're not rightly interacting with it. Justin's going to help me out with the bottom part of that slide. <coughs> okay. The mysterious name of Isaiah's son, Macher Shalal Hashbaz, which the prophet inscribed in ordinary writing. So this wasn't uncommon to those men, but of which no one could grasp the significance until the prophet explained its meaning. These things had to be spiritually discerned, interpreted, and these men in that room could not do that. They could read what was written there, but they could not understand its meaning because their soul was soiled just like the britches. We have a lot of sayings uh, in English that are roughly equivalent. Okay, So when you walk into a room and you saw exactly what happens, but you look at your buddy and say, I don't know how to read that. You don't mean that you didn't see it. You mean you don't understand what you just saw. That's what this is like. And you're going to see that bear out as we go. Yeah. We're going to help you interpret some things. A lot of it has to do with consonantal use of words so that if you're only looking at consonants and there's a few different ways you could read each word, it's not that they don't understand the letters on the wall. They don't know what meaning they're supposed to derive from it. Yeah. Let's pick up in verse 10 and we will help with this as we go. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. Oh, king, live forever, she said. Do not be alarmed. Don't look so pale. Now, you may have a footnote here for queen. It may say queen mother in your Bible. The reason we gave you family trees and stuff early on is to help you understand this. This is Nidocris that we introduced you to earlier as the mother of Belshazzar and wife of uh, Nabonidus. We know that it is not the wife of Belshazzar, as some read it, because his wives and his concubines are already with him in the banquet hall. You saw that in verses 2 and 3. That would make no sense. Her testimony to Daniel also bears some witness, or, or testimony about Daniel, because she's clearly more familiar with everything that's gone on in the previous decades 
than is Playboy Prince. As we pick up in verse 11 and just read uh, verse 11, we'll help you with that. There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy God in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. So I want, I want to give you a couple hints here. Nitocris was both the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar and the mother of Belshazzar. She had heard, if not personally seen, all of the events of Daniel 4. And she is giving wise counsel to her playboy son. I wish she had done it earlier. He wouldn't have been such a dweeb, right? Uh, I had thought we may have time and we don't, so we're, we're, I'm just going to hint at this for you. Y'all are all about to sit around a Hanukkah bush or a Christmas tree, and uh, I'm not casting dispersions on it. We have one in my house. It's been a battle for a long time that my wife has won. It's clearly pagan, but I'm going to give it to her as a seasonal decoration. And uh, kind of like poinsettias in church. I mean, they're just pretty colors, whatever you want to make of it. There is a consistent portrayal of Daniel throughout the book of Daniel. Not only is he elevated in every kingdom, he's always all, also, also always the chief of the Magi. I don't know why people look to China or somewhere else wondering where the wise men came from in the Gospel of Matthew. Hmm. Because Daniel is 80 years old at this point, maybe 81 years old. He has had decades of instruction to wise men. And consider what he already knows. He knows about the four kingdoms. He knows about the four beasts. He knows that a king will be born that will smite the feet of a Gentile statue as a representative of the nation of Israel smashing Gentile kingdoms. He taught these things to the other magi. He was their boss. So when the Bible says kings from the east came, get out a map. Babylon is due east of Jerusalem. Why you would consider anything other than this is a historical testimony to Daniel's enduring witness is really just diminishing the scripture because of our own ignorance of it. It's perfectly logical and biblically hermeneutically sound to believe that those wise men are simply the descendants of men that Daniel taught that were waiting for the coming king of the kingdom on earth and that they knew it because of his faithful witness. Now that that was worth your weight, wasn't it? Let's pick up in verse 12. We got some really good stuff to get to in 25 minutes to do it. This man Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. All right, so we have to move quickly, but make a mental note here. This is the testimony about Daniel. And this is a decade, decades-long testimony. This is a testimony of a righteous man. Her testimony about Daniel is because of his six or seven decades, six or seven decades of righteous living in Babylon. Yeah. Many of you found it hard to live righteously for a couple years? Yeah. Think about Daniel's testimony here. He is in his 80s, and his testimony has lasted for generations, and it is Right here before you today, you're reading about it. So make a mental note about what that righteous testimony looks like. 
Pick up in verse 13. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. So quick note, notice here again, they, they uh, read this writing, but they could not explain it. Explain the, em- it. the emphasis is on the explanation of the writing, not just merely reading the letters. They could not understand the significance of it. Moving on to verse 16. Now I've heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. Yeah. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have, gold, have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gift for yourself Come on, and give your reward to someone else. Get it. Yeah. Get it. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. You may keep the gifts for yourself. Yeah. I don't want any part of those gifts. Hey, give your rewards to somebody else. Yeah. I'm not interested in these worldly, common rewards mm. that are just going to pass away. Yeah. You see, I have holiness as my priority. And I know that the things that you're giving me, they mean nothing yeah. to the future. You actually need what I am going to give you, yeah. O King. Think about the irony here. <laughs> I'm going to offer you these amazing things that will not be mine two hours from now. Now I want you to remember anytime you are talking with someone standing outside the kingdom about what they can do for you, that whatever they're offering you will not be theirs in a whisper of a lifetime. What we are offering has to do with eternal things. That will protect you your whole life long. Now you're understanding why we opened up tonight the way that we did. This is, I'm going to read to you an article, one of the articles of the One Association. It says the following, I will not be bribed, intimidated, or seduced away from the daily implementation of the undeniable truths of Scripture. This article comes from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Why would it be turning away? Because common things have been elevated and holy things have been de-elevated. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. (coughs) We have come to share in Christ, if indeed... We hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. Amen. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Guys, tonight you are seeing Daniel hold to his original conviction. Amen. What his convictions were at first, his foundational elements, he's holding to those tonight. He is the one. That is in a position of greatness. He's the one that has something to offer. He's the one that's in a position to help the Babylonians. But they are (laughs) not in a position to help him in any way. Daniel wants 
and needs nothing from them. But they need what Adonai might give them through the prophet Daniel. Do you hear that? That might sound like an audacious kind of faith. In oh, fact, people yeah. might call you arrogant mm. for acting like that. You know what it is, though? It's very certain of the eternal judgment of all men. Yeah. It's also very certain of your relationship with him. When you can be manipulated by things, when people can tie strings to something that they give you, what you're actually showing is that you don't trust your God. That's, that's really that simple. There are some passages that Peyton is going to hand out for us. We want you to interact with them while we do this. There are other great things we're going to get to, and if we go long, you get next week off. Okay. Joseph, I want you to take Exodus 23.8. Chris, you're going to take Deuteronomy 10.17-18. Nolski, you're going to take Deuteronomy 16.19-20. Pastor Whitney, can I hand one to you? Yes, sir. 1 Samuel 12, verse 3. Pastor Matt. Yeah. 2 Chronicles 19, 7-9. <coughs> Gabe, Job 36, 18. Counselor over there. Proverbs 6, 34-35. Them, Ecclesiastes 7, 7. Damon, Lindsay, you read a lot. Damon, <laughs> Micah 3, 11-12. And Elder Boggs, Micah 7, Three, Paul Makowick, Joshua 7, 20 through 21. Now read these like you want the whole one association to hear it because they're listening. Loud. All right, let's pick up Exodus 23, 8. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds those who see and twist the words of the righteous. Wow. So if your advice can be altered or bought by money, friendship, or acceptance then you are in direct violation of the Torah and your witness will be ruined. Yes. About Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribe. That's good, Chris. Our God cannot be influenced. Our God is the God of gods and he shows no partiality and no bribes. We are his people and neither should we. Yeah, how about Deuteronomy 16, 19? Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise. <laughs> what does a bribe do? Blinds the eyes of the wise. Keep going. And twists the words of the righteous. Follow justice and justice alone, so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God has given you. Dear brothers and sisters, if you accept things from the lost, then how will you know if you are seeing their lives clearly? This is especially true of relatives. Yes. Mm -hmm. It shows up with them in the inheritance that they want you to want. Yes. It shows up in them every time they want to help you out of a situation that you should depend on God to help you out of. Yes. And it always comes back to, hey, but wait, I helped you at some point. And what you need to do is adopt the attitude that the day that you were baptized, you died. Their obligations on you, you died to. 
your expectations of them you died to. So that the life that you now live, you live in Christ, in Christ alone. When we cannot get these things straight, then we do not see clearly in our relationships and we don't represent God correctly in our relationships. I'm just going to tell you right up front, I have never seen it work out that a wealthy man did what he said he would do in a church. I have ne- and that's three decades. Always the enemy is able to pick them off. Yeah. Always. And you are wrong for wanting anything other than what God himself has put in your hands. It's not just the pastor that needs to learn to say, hey, brother, sister, dear loved one, if you want to do something for the kingdom, do it anonymously by putting it in that box. If you want acknowledgement for what's happening, you'll never get it from me. My God does not allow it. Amen. Amen. Listen to Samuel's own testimony in 1 Samuel 12, 3. Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe, bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I have done any of these, I will make it right. You see, the prophets of old like Samuel could say this, and we should be able to say it too. Samuel was a discipled son. And just like us, a discipled son can survive. Amen. As discipled sons, we do not care a damn about what we can get from the people that we are ministering to. Beware of gifts given with strings attached. You may not like the situation it puts you in. What about 2 Chronicles 19, 7 and 8? Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Mm. Judge carefully. For with the Lord our God there is no injustice or partiality or bribery. In Jerusalem also, Jehoshaphat appointed some of the Levites, priests, and heads of Israelite families to administer the law of the Lord and to settle disputes. And they lived in Jerusalem. These are the words of King Jehoshaphat. And what does he say? With the Lord our God, there is no injustice or partiality or bribery. Wow. So what does that mean for us? If we want to see the clear state of those that we're ministering to, the people that we're trying to speak into their lives, then we cannot lust for the things that they have or the things that they are trying to offer us because it blinds us and excuse our judgment. Be careful that no one entices you by riches. Do not let a large bribe turn you aside. Hear it. Do not let a large bribe turn you aside. The little ones, if you have a, a sin meter that is, I will reject everything up to this dollar amount, then you have a serious problem. This usually comes up around our families in regards to inheritances or vacations or gifts. Mm. Or dental work. Ooh. Or any other thing. Or wow. any other thing where they are extending help, bribing you for Ooh. your affection. Here's you either car. stand with the Lord and the Lord alone, or you don't stand with him at all. Let's get Proverbs 6, 34 and 35. This is one of my favorites. For jealousy arouses a husband's fury. Yeah. And he will show no mercy when he takes his revenge. That's true. He will not accept <laughs> any compensation. He will refuse the bribe, however great it is. Now, this is true of an earthly husband. 
What about our God, who is said to be a jealous husband for his bride? He cannot be bought, bribed, or intimidated away from his intention and his fury. Yeah. We are his bride, and this must be our attitude. It was Daniel's attitude, and it will be the attitude we adopt. Amen. Ecclesiastes 7.7. 7. Extortion turns a wise man into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Look, I, I, if you're not getting the point yet, it's because you're guilty. <laughs> We're simply encouraging you to take pride in your high position in Christ. You don't have a need in this world except to be filled with the Holy Ghost and understand His Word. And when you get things into that perspective, you start to see clearly about the things that are of real value. And you won't struggle with your own sense of security uh, or insecurity. Amen. You are God's son. He will provide for you. Amen. Clearly it's Christmas and we have a theme. It's just not the traditional theme. <laughs> Check out Micah 3, 11 through 12. Her leaders judge for a bribe. Mm. Her priests teach for a price. Uh-oh. Her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple, the temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. Very simply, the love of money is a root to many evils. You won't, you won't be tempted with taking a bribe or getting gifts from people if you don't love those things in the first place. How about we love the word of God and love implementing the truth of God and helping people along the way? Just Come ask on. yourself, how many ministries would be better off if they took this attitude? Come on. All of them. All of them. Isn't your home a ministry? Yes. yes. Come on now. <laughs> Micah 7.3. <coughs> Concerning evil, both hands do it well. Ooh. Prince asks to the judge for a bribe, and a great man speaks the desire of his soul, so they weave it together. So this has been a pretty long scripture string so far. Do you guys remember the original intent of why we were bringing these passages? Yes. It's because King Belshazzar wants to influence Daniel to do what he wants with a reward, right? He's trying to influence a man of God. Now remember, Daniel and us in this room cannot and will not be influenced in those ways. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. We have already lost our lives. We have already gained true life and we're walking yeah. in it right now. The key to this, yeah. how we succeed when we're approached with temptations and bribes in this way is to remember your high position, church. Amen. You remember the position that you have and that you are the one with something to offer and this will never be a problem. Their kingdom is the kingdom that's ending. And yours is the kingdom that has no ending. Stand on this ground and call them up to your high position. Amen. 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 Come on. Uh, Joshua 7. Joshua 7, 20 yeah. to 21. Achan replied, It is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. For I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia. Wait, where was it from? <laughs> Babylonia. Oh, my. 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels. Oh. I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. 
Well, at least that worked out well. Yeah. Achan apparently wanted something more than God had already blessed him with, and it brought about his demise. Whoa. But church, think about Daniel. Daniel is everything that Israel is called to be and will become. Yeah. And as graft ends to those great and precious promises, it's time that we start emulating Daniel's unwavering faith where he cannot be bought bribed or deterred from the will of God no matter how big the price tag is. Yeah, come on. All right, Brother Linton, cover some ground for me. Get 18 all the way down to 21. O king, the Most High God gave gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from this royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged the most high God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and set over them anyone he wishes. Quite the forgettable event, right? I mean, easy just to let that pass by your mind. Now, the impact that Nebuchadnezzar's testimony had should have been obvious to Belshazzar. Yeah. The impact of your testimony, LCM, is an obvious one. Come on. It is one that is loud and makes a statement that you stand with the word of God. Amen. We have a parable that Jesus told that we would like you to consider. It comes from Luke 16, verses 29 through 31. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. The man protested and said, No, Father Abraham, he said, But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Your relatives, they don't need another miracle. Amen. If the hand appeared in this room and was writing on the wall, it wouldn't change the testimony that's already written. Mm. If they do not recognize your testimony, Christ inside of you, it's because they do not recognize the truth of the word of God living and active in you. Look, we want to look at the attitude that Daniel displays, knowing what you know now, knowing how Jesus expands upon these concepts Amen. in his next few words. Are y'all ready for this? You still awake? Yes. 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 Nebuchadnezzar did all these things. Nebuchadnezzar did all these things. Nebuchadnezzar did all these things. In verse 22. But you, his son, <laughs> O Belshazzar. But you, his son. <laughs> Have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. I want to give you the ESV, the Eric Stevens version. Your daddy was the head of gold, but you, (laughs) you playboy prince, you are of greatly diminished value. As you stand there in those pretty britches. Yeah? Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You You have the goblets from his temple brought to you, and your nobles, and your wives, and your concubines. Drank wine from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which 
cannot, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you do not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Before we read verse 24, I want you to understand that God accepted drink offerings all of the time. They had to be fermented. They had to be something that was very special. Valuable. Valuable. They were, they were not grape juice, despite what the Baptist said. You know what they did not do? The priests did not drink from those goblets. They were poured out before the Lord. He is doing something the priest didn't dare to do. And now sentence is being passed on him. Okay? The, the Kohathites who looked upon these things would be struck dead. The Kohathites who touched these things would be struck dead. This chapter ends with Belshazzar being struck dead. <coughs> what we're about to read is the handwriting on the wall. Therefore, yeah. he sensed the hand that wrote this inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Harsin. And this is what these words mean. Mene. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the, per the, the Persians. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. So there are a few things that we want you to know about this because we have a feeling it's where you spend a lot of your time in study. Uh, to start with, we're thankful Daniel interpreted it. That ends all, all debate. Makes it easier. Mene has to do with numbering. Tekel has to do with weighing. And Perez has to do with division. And... What you need to realize is when you're looking at that, they don't have vowels in it. Right. They're consonantal only. So let me give you an example of one of the reasons that people are looking at the letters, but they're not sure what meaning to derive from it. We have a slide called consonantal wordplay. In interpreting the third word, Daniel changed the plural parson to the singular Perez. Belshazzar's kingdom was to be broken up, divided, parasat and given to the Medes and Persians. Apparently, Daniel intended a wordplay on the words for a change in the vowels in Perez, which gives the word Persian, paras. Thus, the meaning was that because of the moral and spiritual degradation of the king and his kingdom, God would terminate the Babylonian Empire and give it to the Medes and the Persians. In every one of these words, when you're looking at it, you would have to guess what the vowels should be. And you tend to think in terms of, well, it is either this or that. This is a very Hebrew thing to do. When you are reading the word Perez, God intended two meanings, even though you would only read one. The meaning was actually expressed in Daniel as divided, which is one way to read the word. But it was also expressed the other way that you can read the word, which is Persian, because there are only consonants there, and it just depends on which vowels you fill in. That's why it was a mystery to the wise men, but it was not a mystery to Daniel, who had Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, and the Spirit of God helping him to understand what he was seeing. Amen. 
The letters were plainly written. Their meaning was obscured. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Uh, we're going to continue to illustrate this as we move forward, and there are some other beautiful things you may not have considered. But I just want to tell you, you know, what was the Apostle Paul's Hebrew name? Shaul. Shaul. Well, when you're reading that in Hebrew, before the Masoretes added vowel points, you would also have to guess whether it meant death, shield. You wouldn't know the difference except from the context, and there is no context to the writing that is on the wall. You can do the same thing with uh, Midbar and Midbar. One of these words means desert, and the other means to speak. Of course, the book of Bay Midbar is these are the words that were spoken in the desert. These word plays are constant in Hebrew, and it's a way to use very few words to express a very complex thought. We tend to think, which one did he mean? And the answer was yes. yes. Both is what he meant. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Okay. Uh, we have another slide to help you with a yet another meaning. The first meaning is plainly written in Daniel. The second has to do with consonantal wordplay. And the third is why we went through the family tree. When you see Nebuchadnezzar and evil Merodach in yellow there, the word that could be applied to them is where it says meanie in your Bible. It could also have been read as mina. A mina is a unit of measurement, a Babylonian coin that is worth 50. Yep. It's very valuable. Somebody say 50. So for now, we're going to think in terms of dollars. This first generation, the father-son combination of Nebuchadnezzar and evil Merodach, is worth $50, the head of gold. But in the second generation, where we have Neri Galisar and Labishi Marduk, the word tekel can also be read as shekel. It's the second denomination of Babylonian money. You go from a mina to a shekel. A mina is worth 50 shekels. A shekel is a singular unit. So from $50 to $1. Do you see the diminishing value? Yeah. Well, it turns out that the word written as Perez is also the same word, the same consonants for a half shekel, the smallest amount of money that a Babylonian would carry in his pocket. So when they hear meanie, tekel, Parsons, they can hear that it's numbered, that it's weighed, and it will be divided. They can also hear it's been numbered, weighed, and given to Persians. And they can also hear something is going on with you guys. You were worth 50, and then you were worth one, and now you are worth far less than one. Wow. Wow. All three meanings would have to be in play to somebody reading a consonantal language. Now tell me you learned something. All right, help us out with Jeremiah again, brothers. Jeremiah 27, 6 through 7 is incredible because in all of the levels of interpretation, this passage is fulfilled. Listen to these words. Now I will hand all your countries over to my servant Nebuchadnezzar, King of Babylon, I will make even the wild animals subject to him. All nations will serve him and his son and his grandson until the time for his land comes. Then 
many nations and great kings will subjugate him. So just to summarize this for you guys one more time, meaning the days of the Babylonian kingdom were measured from the time of Nebuchadnezzar and evil Merodach. They were worth 50. Tekel, Nereglisar, and his son were weighed and found wanting. They were worth one. And Perez, Nabonidus, and his son were destined to experience the dividing of the kingdom in their day, and they were worth a half at best. Come on, somebody. Tell me that you found that. Amen. Well, we're trying to give you treasures. Now, there is uh, at least two hours worth of material to go through, and we're going to just uh, allude to it so that you can work on it in your homework. While Jeremiah and the inerrancy of his prophecies as well as Isaiah's are indisputable, there are some glaring contradictions that you're going to have to get into. If you read Jeremiah's last two chapters, the destruction of Babylon that is described is not what occurs here. In fact, you read from one of the slides earlier that Cyrus <coughs> takes over the city without much of a battle. Okay? In fact, we can give you many historical records where the city stays intact, the governmental positions stay in place, they're just given to Persian people and, and uh, people from the Medes. Babylon was described by the last two chapters of Jeremiah, so think 51 and 52, as being utterly and finally destroyed, being a haunt for mere jackals never to rise again. Babylon stays on the world stage after these events for hundreds of years. In fact, Saddam Hussein was rebuilding parts of, of uh, this very palace. They rediscovered this room and built it. So Jeremiah was incredibly accurate, and yet his words remain unfulfilled. Isaiah chapter 13 and 14, they describe exactly the same process. The fall of Babylon never to rise again. Utter and total destruction. That did not happen in the transition to the Medo-Persian Empire. Which takes us to another two chapters. They're easy to remember. It's Jeremiah 51 and 52. It is Isaiah 13 and 14. And then Revelation 17 and 18 where Babylon is again described as falling, never to rise again. I love my brothers that look for historical fulfillment and everything and would like to call everything done. I do not believe that you could read those six chapters back to back and come away with the idea that Babylon has done anything other than had a temporary fall. Babylon's doom is what is prophesied in those six chapters. This is not their doom. It is the fall of the Neo-Babylonian Empire so that it can be replaced by Mystery Babylon. Okay? If you don't understand that significance yet, you will. God will give you insight into it. And we're going to keep teaching the book of Daniel. We're seven minutes over, and so we're going to end at this point. I wanted one last time as we invite the pastors to close to remind you that the first chapter of James... Verses 9 and 10 tell you, take pride in your high position. Okay? 
As Christians, you don't think it's right to take pride in something. There's only one thing that you are supposed to take pride in. Know who you are in Christ. Know his worth to you and your worth to him. Just like John 10, his sheep know his voice and he knows them even as he knows the Father and the Father knows him. That is worth everything in this world. Verse 10 of James 1 tells men who have a lot in this world to understand their low position because they are like flowers that will soon disappear. We need to reflect that attitude. And at a time when what is supposed to be Christ's birthday and is clearly not, the world celebrates his birth by the most extravagant displays of carnality that you could possibly conjure up in his name. Now is the time for you to not want a thing from this world and stand for the kingdom of God. Stand to your feet with us tonight. Sid, put up James 1.9 that Pastor just referenced. (coughs) Now, we know that you are a faithful body of believers here, and none of us in this room would ever think that we're not trying to be bribed on any particular day. Because we all know that actually our pastors spoke to us tonight because this is very pertinent to this season that we're in. Oh, my family would never bribe you. Wouldn't they, though? Yes. Don't they, though? Yes. <laughs> oh, it's, it's just a Christmas present. <coughs> and it's their affection, and it's their approval, and it's their desire to be able to control men and women of God. But here is what is being said to us tonight. This is where we started. This is where I'll end before Pastor prays. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. You have been given a high position because you are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Do not let anything, do not let any offer, do not let any quote-unquote help be tried to offer you other than what God himself is giving to you and here in this family. There is nothing that is worth losing out on your high position. When you allow yourself to be bribed through family enticements, through gifts, through affection, you are not doing what this scripture says. You're only actually thinking that you are in a low position and need them. You've been given a high position, church. You are seated with Christ. He has given you everything. You have been made full in Christ. And that is the attitude that we're going to walk out of this place with tonight. You've been given the treasures of heaven. Come on, let's actually, every one of us, live like that. We're going to live like that in everything that we do. Amen. Let's pray. Mighty King of heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word that gives us clear instruction of what you demand of us, the high position in which you have seated us with you. Lord, may we be your right ambassadors, speaking your word that calls them up to the high position that we are seated with you. Lord, we thank you for your word that purifies our heart. Lord, it directs our thoughts, and it gives us strength to carry out your commands. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this word that transforms us on an ongoing basis. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen.